Well, I want to welcome you back to our sermon series on the book of Daniel that I've titled Daniel Remaining Faithful in a Faithless Generation. And as the title suggests, uh, we're taking time to look at Daniel and investigate what this book has to say about living a God-centered life in a me-centered world. And so we've started, we started last Sunday, and we started our journey looking at a portion of, of chapter one of Daniel, and we're going to retrace our steps, and we're going to look at that same passage again, and we'll go a little bit further this Sunday, but I think there is more gold in this passage to harvest, and I don't want us to miss out on it. So let me pray, and then I will read Daniel chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, what a blessing your word is to us, how it reveals your will to us, how it reveals your character to us, your love for us, and also informs how we are to live in a world that is uh, just a crazy world, as we talked about last week. Lord, I pray that as we retrace our steps a bit here in Daniel 1, that you would speak to us, that it would become more clear how we need to approach our lives, that the battle we're in would become more clear, that the enemy we're up against and we face would become more clear, so that we know how uh, to go into battle on a daily basis and how to live victoriously through your spirit that fuels us. Lord, we want to be your army that uh, destroys the work of the enemy, that, that wins back territory for your kingdom, that brings hearts uh, of people that are hurting to you for healing and hope. And so, Lord, we, we ask that this would be a part of our training, a part of us being prepared to fight on your behalf with your power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let me read Daniel 1 to you. I'm going to read the whole chapter here. 21 verses in Daniel 1. So let, let's check it out. And as always, you know, when we read a passage of Scripture, I encourage you to try and hone in as best as you can, you know. Try and be present with the passage because I think God's still small voice is always looking to speak to us and to teach us, and so I encourage you to do that. Here we go, Daniel 1.1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, in whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans." And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank in three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, 
Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you in the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. All right. So always there's, there's just a lot there to, to take in. Um, and there are some things that I want to highlight here about remaining faithless and a faithless, or remaining faithful. I think we want to choose that route, remaining faithful in a faithless generation. So here is the first takeaway, I think, for us from this passage today. If you are going to remain faithful to God, you have to understand that you are in a spiritual battle. So... Our text doesn't uh, come out and explicitly say that Daniel knew he was in a spiritual battle. But it's easy to infer from the text. It's definitely implied that Daniel knew he was in a spiritual battle. Daniel knew that there was much more behind the, the, the siege of Jerusalem than what meets, than what meets the eye. He knew that there was a story going on behind that reality, behind this earthly event. You know, on the surface, it just like looked like there was this King Nebuchadnezzar who was strong and powerful, and he was just coming, and he was just taking over yet another, another city. But Daniel knew that behind all human events, there's a conflict that's going on. And it's a conflict that's been going on since the beginning of the world. It's 
the conflict that has run through the entire course of human history. Now, what's the conflict that I am referring to that Daniel was well aware of? Well, the conflict that Daniel knew was behind every human event was this conflict between God and his kingdom and Satan and his kingdom. It's this conflict between these two forces for the hearts of mankind. That is the conflict that has been going on since the beginning of human history. And it continues to rage today. And when we see certain events, what's really going on behind the reality we see is this unseen reality of two forces colliding. That's what the siege of Jerusalem was really all about. Satan and his agents were looking to devour God's people in Jerusalem when King Nebuchadnezzar came and he sieged it. Do you understand that you are in the same battle? That you, whether you like it or not, this is the battle you're in. This is the war that's raging all around you, and often, unfortunately, it rages inside of us. A battle for your heart, a battle for your mind, a battle for your affections, a battle for your loyalty, your trust, your very soul. That's the battle behind all our other battles. Ephesians 6.12 tells us this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Do you understand that there are cosmic principalities, cosmic powers, cosmic rulers that govern the kingdom of darkness, and they are against you. And you are no match for them. Alone. Writer John Bloom writes this. In Peter Jackson's film, Ad- Adaptation of Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, after Frodo, the hobbit, has his first encounter with evil Nazgul, he meets Strider, who turns out to be King Aragorn. Strider asks Frodo, are you frightened? Frodo answers, yes. Strider replies, not nearly frightened enough. I know who hunts you. Bloom asks us, do you know who hunts you? You see, C.S. Lewis, he noted that we can make two errors when it comes to the enemy. One error is that we can... Just live out, you know, live out in, you know, an outright fear of the enemy and be really um, unhealth, in an unhealthy way, be interested in the enemy and be excessive in our interests when it comes to the enemy. But there's also another error we can make when it comes to Satan and his agents is that we can... Just live without any regular thought of their existence. Unaware that we have a kingdom that is against us. 
and we can totally underestimate our opponents. We can overlook our enemy. We cannot take him very seriously. We cannot give him much thought. And I think many Christians are more in danger of not, you know, being too highly interested in the enemy, but instead they have erred in the sense where we just kind of live life unaware that we have this major, major opponent. Luke, well, before I go to Luke, let me say this. Do you wake up in the morning and remind yourself, and maybe you should, I am being hunted today. I encourage you this week, wake up in the morning and ask, or tell yourself, I am being hunted today. You may recall when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples just prior to his crucifixion, right? And he's talking to Peter. Jesus, he turned to Peter and he says this in Luke twenty-two thirty-one: Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Do you understand that Satan wants to sift you like wheat? You know how you sift wheat? How you sift wheat is you take, you take the wheat and you beat it to knock off the grain. And then you take the chaff with the grain and you throw it up in the air. This is what combines do now. But in, back in those days, you throw it up in the air and then the wind would take the chaff away, right? Satan wants to beat you and he wants to just blow you away. With his fiery wind. No wonder Peter later wrote in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You see, you can't win a battle that you don't know you're in. You can't beat an opponent that you don't even know you're fighting. Right? That's a sure way to lose. You know, there's no reason to be sober. There's no reason to be vigilant if you do not think a threat exists. And that's the sad part with what's going on in our world. Because there are so many people, thousands of people walking on planet Earth that aren't aware of this immense spiritual battle that they're in. They're... They're operating, you know, in this world without that knowledge. And the enemy is in their life, and he's, he's operating in stealth mode, undetected, creating all kinds of pain and dysfunction and brokenness, but yet remaining under the radar. They think their ultimate enemy is their spouse or their child or their employer or their neighbor or their sibling. Sure, these people may be causing them pain, and they're no doubt responsible for their actions, but the real enemy behind it all is Satan. Somewhere along the line, Satan has convinced the person that is hurting them to injure others. Do you remember when Jesus was telling his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed? And you remember where, you know, Peter, he said, no way, that's not going to happen. That's not the plan. 
And do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. You see, on the surface, it looked like Peter was Jesus' enemy, but Jesus knew the real enemy was Satan. Satan was influencing Peter to hinder Jesus from completing the work to die for us on the cross. We just heard of another suicide in the Perry Local School District. Six this year. On the surface, it looks like there are kids that are hurting, and for sure they are. But there's a battle behind that battle. And the battle is the enemy is winning. The battle is these kids need to know the Savior. That's what's going on. There is a hold on that district. And we need to be praying for God's mercy and grace and love and hope to just so impact that district and to so beat out the kingdom of darkness that has manifested itself there. And we need to pray for Alicia and we need to pray for um, Chanel. I almost called you just a completely different name because they're in it. Every day, they work in the district, and they're working hard, and the, prince, or the superintendent's a great guy, a Christian guy, and we got to be praying for him. All right, so I think the knowledge that Satan is our ultimate enemy and that we are in battle for our hearts should do at least three things for us. Knowing we are in a spiritual battle should motivate us to resist the temptation to sin. You know, when we sin... We're not just making a poor decision. We're not just hurting ourselves or hurting another person. We're not even just hurting God's own heart. But you know what we're doing? We're making Satan happy. And we're making ourselves even more open to Satan gaining a foothold in our lives. And if we understand that we have a real enemy who is as nasty as nasty gets and who has, whose only agenda is to steal, kill, and destroy, that should give us even more motivation to resist sin in our life. We don't want him to win. Secondly, when we are faced with a difficult situation, knowing we are in a spiritual battle should motivate us to ask, this is such an important question, how would the enemy like to bully me in this situation? So what does the enemy want me to think in this circumstance right now that I'm in that's extremely difficult? What would the enemy like me to do? What would the enemy like me to say? What would the, how would the enemy like me to view the other person that's a part of this problem? How would the enemy like me to view God right now? How would the enemy like me to view myself? How would the enemy like me to fear in this situation? How is the enemy trying to bully me? Knowing we are in a spiritual battle should motivate us to ask, how can I be on guard against the enemy? So in other words, how can I be spiritually vigilant, as Peter talks about, watchful for the attacks of the enemy? How can I be proactive and prepare for battle? 
You know, the worst time to prepare for any battle is when you're already in it. It's almost always too late to be victorious if you are preparing for your opponent while you're fighting your opponent, right? One way that we can prepare for battle, and I want to just spend the rest of our time in this way, this way of preparation, is we can prepare for battle by really understanding the enemy's schemes. If we can understand the enemy's schemes, if we can understand his playbook, then we're going to be more apt and able through the power of the Spirit to fight against and to resist and to overcome. So if you are going to, and this leads us to our second point, if you are going to remain faithful to God, you have to understand the schemes of the enemy. So if Satan's overarching goal is to hurt God by hurting the people that God loves, by keeping unbelievers in unbelief and destroying the faith of the faithful, how does Satan, as he attempts to seek and kill and destroy, how does Satan go about this? What are his tricks? What are his plays and his playbook? Well, let's start with this one. Satan seeks to isolate the faithful in order to weaken them. In an attempt to destroy Daniel's faith and his friend's faith, what did Satan do? He isolated them. He took them away from the temple in Jerusalem. He took them away from their their church family, essentially. Took them away from other people who were faithful followers of Yahweh, the one true God of the Bible. And he brings them into the king's palace where they are void of that influence. They had each other, which was a good thing, but they were missing out on their larger community of faith. Satan loves to isolate us. You know, think about when uh, Satan came and he tempted Jesus. What did he do? He took him out into the wilderness. Isolation. Alone. This is why Hebrews 3.13 tells us, Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Satan will do the, his best, you know, he'll do the best he can at getting us alone. Cutting us off from the support and the encouragement of other believers. He doesn't want other believers reminding us of the gospel truth. He doesn't want us being reminded of his love for us. Satan doesn't want us to be encouraged to live out our faith on a daily basis. Satan doesn't want us to be held accountable in our faith with Christ, you know, with other believers. He wants us dealing with life all by ourselves. He wants us dealing with our struggles and our pain all by ourselves. He, he wants to do his best to convince us that we don't need to be here on Sunday mornings. That we don't need to be open and vulnerable with other Christians. That we can really let people in. Satan does his best to make us feel so much shame and guilt. And he, makes, he tries his best to make us feel like if we really told somebody, if we really let them know how we're struggling, how we're hurting, the sin we're wrestling with, then people would just look in a judgmental way at us and think less of us. He does all that so he can keep us, uh, keep us isolated. And you know what Satan hates? He hates us getting together on Sunday. 
He hates us getting together in life groups where encouragement, support, and accountability can, can take place. It's the last thing he wants. He wants us isolated. That's a main tactic of his. Another tactic of Satan is this, filling our minds with lies. He loves to do that in order to break down our faith. Satan didn't just isolate Daniel and his friends. What else did Satan do? He made Daniel and his friends be enrolled into a curriculum that was just demonic for three years. The scriptures tell us that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. What did Satan do? What tactic? What strategy? What play out of his playbook did he use? He lied to Adam and Eve. What did he do to Jesus when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted? He lied to Jesus. And what Satan does is he uses lies to get us to doubt God's goodness, to get us to doubt God's love for us, to get us to doubt our true identity in Christ, to get us to doubt God's love for us, to get us to doubt that God is working out all things for our long-term good and happiness. He wants us to think that we are crazy about, you know, he wants us to think we're crazy. He wants us to think that we're a lost cause. He wants us to think that we are unlovable. Or he wants us to think that we are better or stronger or mightier than what we really are. Satan loves to tell us lies in order to get us to believe that real life is found in everything but God. Another tactic that Satan uses to destroy our faith is seducing us with power and recognition. Satan loves to seduce us with these two things. Daniel and his friends, they were being trained to serve in the king's palace. Talk about a position of power. Talk about a position of honor in that society. Talk about a, a position of influence. And I'm sure, because Daniel was a human being, and his buddies were human beings, that there was this temptation to want to just do everything that old King Nebuchadnezzar told them so that they could get the highest positions within his administration. Power, recognition, and influence. I mean, if they could do that, the only person that they would have to listen to would be King Nebuchadnezzar. That's the only person. They would be in charge of everyone else. They would have control. They would have autonomy. Remember how Satan seduced Adam and Eve in the garden with power? He lied to the couple by telling them, hey, if you just eat of this tree, you will be like God. You will, you will have power. You will have independence. You will be able to control your own lives, your own destiny. Satan tried to tempt Jesus with this as well, or he did tempt Jesus with this as well in the wilderness. Satan told Jesus, hey, throw yourself off the temple, uh, the, the peak of the temple, and then angels will rescue you, and then everybody will know that you truly are the Son of God, the Messiah, and people, you'll have influence and power, and you'll have people adoring you. And you know what else? 
you should do, Jesus? Hey, if you bow down to me, then I will give you the kingdoms of the world. You see Satan tempting Jesus with power, control, influence. Satan likes to do the same thing to us today. He does. He tells us not to be dependent on God. Don't submit to his rule. Be your own God. Call your own shots. Be the master of your fate. Decide on what's best for you. Decide for yourself how you want to live. Rule over others. Get glory for yourselves. Promote yourself. That's what will make your life significant. That's what will bring satisfaction to your life. Be in control. Another tactic that Satan uses, and the final one I'll mention, is that he likes to destroy our faith by seducing us with comfort and pleasure. And I'm telling you right now, this is the biggest tactic, I believe, this is my opinion, I could be wrong, that we struggle with here in America is this one right here. I struggle with this, no doubt about it, and I bet you do too. Remaining faithful to God in a hostile environment is always extremely difficult. And for Daniel, if he was going to remain faithful to to God, it was going to be extremely difficult for him. And so what does Satan do? He tempts Daniel and his buddies with comfort and pleasure. We read this in Daniel 1.5. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. The king's delicacies, the king's wine, the finest food and drink in the world. This is what we're talking about here. Daily. Notice that when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, the fruit that he tempted it with, tempted them with was pleasing to the eye, which means it looked really good to eat. How about uh, Jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness? Satan tempts Jesus to turn the stones into bread. Please yourself. Please your, fre- your flesh. There's no reason, Jesus, you should be out here doing this. If you're the son of God, you shouldn't be out here for 40 days with no food and no water. Please yourself. Make yourself more comfortable. Turn the stones into bread. Bible scholar Sinclair Ferguson writes this. I think this is so good. Somebody in Nebuchadnezzar's palace knew enough about the human heart to see that most men have their price. And that good times, comfort, self-esteem, and a position in society are usually a sufficient, a sufficient bid for a soul. Satan still t- attempts to destroy our commitment to God by seducing us with pleasure and comfort. He loves to bring us to this place where we're more concerned about the quality of our life than we are the cause of Christ. Where our focus becomes about our standard of living. When our focus becomes how comfortable our retirement can be. The comfort, how home, how comfortable our homes can be, how beautiful they can be, how pleasurable our vacations can be, how good the food that we eat and cook can be, how fun and entertaining the toys, the toys we own can be. He loves to make us into people that follow Jesus as long as it's safe and easy and comfortable and convenient and predictable, and then we lose our impact for the kingdom of God. 
Let's recap. Like Daniel, you are the hunted. Your enemy is a great opponent who you cannot beat apart from Christ's power. You must be on guard. The opponent's aim is to destroy your faith and render you ineffective for the kingdom of God. If he can't destroy your faith, what he'll do is he'll make you happy and comfortable so that you become complacent in your faith so that you don't do very much for the cause of Christ. That's guaranteed he will do that. In order to make this happen, the enemy loves to isolate us. He loves to lie to us. He loves to seduce us with power, control, recognition, and with comfort and pleasure. So I ask you this morning, in what ways are you most susceptible to the enemy? Where are your weak spots? Has Satan worked to make you complacent in your faith? Has Satan brought you to a place of half devotion to Jesus? Are you living a life where you're saying to God, are you, are, are you living a life where you're saying to God, wherever, whenever, however, all I am is yours, all I have is yours? Even if it's hard and difficult and risky, will you use me? Just use me. Or has Satan got you distracted with the cares of this life? Are you in community with other believers? People that are asking you, how's your marriage? How are you doing with that lust problem you have? How are you doing with that porn addiction that you have? How are you doing with being in the word? Are you in it daily? That's the sword of our spirit. Are, are you praying daily? Because that's how we combat the enemy is on our knees. Are you, are you, are you praying daily? Who's it? Do you have anybody asking you those questions? If you don't, it's not good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am so thankful that you who are, who are in us is way more stronger than he who is in the world. And Lord, I am so thankful that we can be victorious over this horrible, horrible enemy. Lord, we don't need to fear him because we've got you. We just need to be alert. We need to be aware. We can't underestimate the enemy. We can't live our lives allowing him to operate in stealth mode. Lord, we pray that you would make us just valiant fighters for your kingdom. Lord, we are so thankful that we have the hope that you are returning and you've already decisively defeated the enemy on the cross. He's, he's, a, he's, he's a loser. And he's just trying to, you know, like this last final attempt to, do, to cause whatever destruction he can before you return and you destroy him once and for all forever. Lord, I can't wait for that. I can't wait till you make all things new. I can't wait till there's no more kids killing themselves. Lord, may we here at Abundant Life be such a great amount of salt and light in this dark world. As each person's in this room, as they go out into their job, as they go out into their profession, Lord, I pray that you would just empower them, that they would love so well, that they would look for the hurting 
that they would look to bind up the hurting, that they'd be praying for their employer, that they'd be praying for their coworkers, even the ones that just annoy them, that they would just be such salt and light that people would walk away saying, there's something different about that person. I don't know what he's got, but I want some of it. Lord, make us into these people. We understand that we fall short so many times, Lord, and it's only by your grace that we can (laughs) sin less and become more wholeheartedly devoted to you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.